Alright everybody, welcome back. In this episode we're going to take First Chronicles chapter 16 where we get David's psalm of thanks and Ark is brought into the prepared tent. Alright, let's just take the first three verses. David gives the assembly a feast. So they brought the Ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. All right, looking at this, after many re- after many years since the ark was lost in battle, the ark is now returned to the center of Israel's national consciousness. The emblem of God's presence and glory was set in its proper place in Israel, right? So the burnt offering spoke of consecration. The peace offerings spoke of fellowship. This was a day of great consecration and fellowship with God. It was also a great barbecue and meal for all the people, right? And these sacrifices were an important part of the ceremony. Neglected in the first attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, uh, these pointed them towards Christ, freeing them from their sins, both from the crime and from the curse. These taught them thankfulness for Christ and all benefits in and by Him. The second item of food, which is only known here and in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, uh, was either a cake of dates or a portion of meat, right? If the latter is correct, it was an especially generous act since meat rarely appeared on domestic menus in ancient Israel. And most flesh from the peace offerings was eaten by the people themselves sitting down, as it were, as guests of God's table in a meal celebrating the restoration of their peace with him. Alright, so the burnt offering here. Um, we always talk about it ascending, right? The whole thing being consumed by fire, regarded as ascending to God while being consumed. Part of every offering was burnt in the sacred fire, but this was wholly burnt a whole burnt offering and it was the most frequent form of sacrifice the only one mentioned in the book of Genesis by Abel in Genesis chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 by Noah in Genesis chapter 8 verse 20 and by Abraham in Genesis 22 verses 2, 7, 8, and 13 so the law of Moses afterwards prescribed the occasions and the manner in which burnt sacrifices were to be offered alright so you had the continual burnt offering in Exodus chapter 29 verses 38 through 42 and Leviticus chapter 6 verses 9 through 13. You had the burnt offering of every Sabbath, which was double the daily one in Numbers chapter 28, verses 9 and 10. You had the burnt offering of every month, and that was Numbers 28, verses 11 through 15. The offerings at the Passover, which is in Numbers 28, verses 19 through 23. The Feast of Shavuot and Pentecost, that's Leviticus 23, verse 16. The Feast of Trumpets in Leviticus 23, verses 23 through 25. And the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, verse 1. So peace offerings covered in Leviticus chapter 3 verse 1, chapter 7 verses 11 through 21, and verses 29 through 34. Eucharistic or Thanksgiving offerings, uh, which expressed, uh, they were expressive of gratitude for blessings received, right, in fulfillment of a vow, but expressive also mainly of thanks for the benefits received, and uh, free will offerings, which was something spontaneously devoted to God. All right, we'll take verses 4 through 6, where the worship leaders are appointed to lead the congregation. And he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the Ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph the chief, and next to him Zechariah, then Jeel, Shemur Amoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, and Obed-Edom. And Jeel was uh, with stringed instruments and harps, but Asaph made music with 
symbols. Beniah and Jazael, the priest, regularly blew the trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant of God. All right. So talking about these appointed leaders, uh, these Levites, at the end of this spectacular day of celebration, David established an enduring institution of worship and commemoration at the Ark of the Covenant. And it wasn't to be a one-day high, but an ongoing ministry to God, right? David's appointment then of Levites to minister in music and praise to God marks a significant advance in the history of Israel's worship. His previous arrangements for music had been devised for just one occasion, but now we get a continuing service um, which is envisioned here. Some of these Levites were pointed out to commemorate and the Levitical appointments for that day and beyond, David selected some Levites to focus on commemorating what great things God had done. Simply remembering God's great works is an important and often neglected part of the Christian life. Uh, Spurgeon in his sermon, The Recorders, noted several ways that we can help ourselves remember the the great things of God. We can make an actual record of what God has done, keeping a written journal We can be sure to praise God thoroughly at the time you receive his goodness. You can set apart time for meditation on the good things God has done. You can talk about his mercy often to other people and use everything around you as reminders of the goodness of God. All right, let's talk about Asaph the chief here. Previously, the Levites had appointed Heman as the leader of worship in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 17. At this time, David elevated Asaph to this position. And no reason is given, though Asaph did represent the senior Levitical clan of Gershon in 1 Chronicles Chronicles chapter 6 verses 39 through 43 covers that. And personal ability may also have been a contributing factor for Asaph and his descendants are listed as composers for 12 of the inspired Old Testament Psalms. Right, So Asaph was going to be in charge of the ark in uh, its new surroundings verse 37. And to offer prayers and praises to the Lord. With Asaph were certain other Levites all mentioned in verses 17-18 who were to accompany the praises with musical instruments. Alright, verse 7, we're going to get a psalm written for the special occasion. And on that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. So David was known as the sweet psalmist of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 23 verse 1, and he especially wrote the following psalm to thank the Lord on the day the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem. And the psalm is found in the book of Psalms, its first movement, um, 822 in Psalm 105 verses 1 through 15. Its second movement, 23 33 in Psalm 96 verses 1 through 13 and its third movement 34 through 36 consisting of a quotation of the opening and closing sentences of Psalm 106 verses 1 through 47 and 48. So all three of the uh, canonical psalms that he quoted are anonymous. They're orphan psalms which means they're without a title in the Old Testament but on the basis of the king's use of them here they should indeed be classed as his. All right, so we'll take verses 8 through 13, the call to praise. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. So like many psalms, this one begins with a call to praise, virtually in the form of commandment. Yet the psalm breathes with too much excitement 
sufficient for this to be a true command. It is an exhortation to the community of God's people to join in praise to their God. And all the good that we enjoy does come from God. You should recollect that, and most men forget it. Rowland Hill used to say that worldlings were like the hogs under the oak, which eat the acorns, but never think of the oak from which they fell, nor lift up their heads to grunt out a thanksgiving. And so it is, they munch the gift and murmur at the giver. And how we are just like that today, or many of us are. So in a few verses, David lists a remarkable number of ways. Here, give thanks, call upon, make known, sing, talk, glory, seek, remember, right? There are at least eight here. Uh, One can praise and glorify God. Some of them speak directly to God, such as singing psalms to him. Some speak to others about God's greatness, make known his deeds among the peoples. And some are a conversation with oneself, right? Remember his marvelous works, right? So the talk on all of his wondrous works. We do not talk sufficiently about God. Why is it so, and why it is so may uh, not be easy to explain, but there seems to be too great uh, reshence among Christian people about these things. We talk about sermons, details of worship and church organization, or the latest phrase of scripture criticism. We will discuss men, methods, and churches, but our talk in the home and in the gatherings of Christians for social purposes is too seldom about the wonderful works of God. It's better to speak less and talk more of Him. And if we talked more of God's wonderful wondrous works, we should be free from talking of other people's works. It's easy to criticize those that we could not rival and carp at those that we could not emulate. And he who could not starve or carve a statue or make a single stroke of a chisel correctly affects to point out where the handicraft of the great sculptor might have been improved. And it is a poor, pitiful occupation that of picking holes in other people's coats. And yet some people seem so pleased when they can perceive a fault that they roll it under their tongue as a sweet morsel from Spurgeon. And there is no gifted tongue requisite. There are no powers of eloquence invoked. Neither laws of rhetoric nor rules of grammar are pronounced indispensable in the simple talk that my text inculates. Talk you of all his wondrous works. I beg your pardon when you say you cannot do this. You cannot because you will not. Also from Spurgeon. So, O seed of Israel, his chosen ones, right? This call to praise is directed to the people of God. And as will be noted later in the psalm, all creation has a responsibility to praise its creator. But this is a special responsibility of God's people. So, a model of such praise, a piece undoubtedly composed by David for this occasion, follows, right? And uh, this hymn of thanksgiving that we just went over, this hymn of thanksgiving is actually a compilation of passages from other psalms previously written by David, right? Verses 8 through 22 are covered in Psalm 105, verses 1 through 15. Verses 23 through 33 are covered in Psalm 96, verses 1 through 13. And um, verses 34 through 36 are covered in Psalm 106, verse 1 and 47 and 48. So Psalm 105, looking at this, the psalmist began with a call to Israel to praise and rejoice because the Lord's many wonderful acts in his holy name. His name means his attributes that are revealed to man. And you can note Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. It's not mere vocabulary, it's ambassadorship. Israel should depend on... On the Lord, right? Look and seek his face. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Failure to remember or acknowledge his marvelous works results in a specific judgment, and that is homosexuality, and that is covered in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, right? Yep, homosexuality is a judgment and the rejection of his marvelous works. You'll note that in that passage, who is giving over, right? God gave them over. It's worth the look. All right, verses 14 through 19, you will remember God's covenant with his people, right? 
So he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which he had made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. And he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute. To Israel for an everlasting covenant. Saying to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. When you are few in number. Indeed very few and strangers in it. Alright. So David will soon begin to sing about the special relationship between the Lord and his covenant people. Yet he prefaced those ideas with the thought that God. God is the Lord of all the earth. His authority is not limited to his covenant people. And God wanted his people to never forget the covenant he made with them. God's dealing with man through history has been based on the idea of covenant. And God made a covenant with Abraham regarding a land, a nation, and a particular messianic blessing in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. God made a covenant with Israel as a nation regarding a law, sacrifice, and choice of blessing or cursing in Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 through 8. God made a covenant with David regarding a specific lineage of the Messiah in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God made a covenant with all those who would believe on his son, the new covenant through Jesus Christ in Luke 22 verse 20. So it was entirely appropriate that the psalm focuses on the idea of his covenant because it was written for the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant into the place David prepared for it in Jerusalem. In the restoration of the Ark, after a period of neglect, the people found a sure token of that mercy. And of course in these passages it said to you I will give the land of Canaan. David here highlights the promise of land that God made to Abraham as part of his uh, as part of his covenant with the patriarch back in Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 and chapter 13 verses 14 through 17. The land belonged to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through this covenant. In this, we see that this portion of the psalm is largely meant for teaching. The stanza was not primarily intended as a declaration of praise to God, but as informing the worship of God's people. And we cannot overemphasize the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants for study. They are critical in your understanding of the scripture. God takes his covenants seriously, and so should we. All right, let's take verses 20 through 22, God's protection upon his people. When they went from one nation to another and from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. So, in the story of the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant recorded in 2 Samuel, this psalm of David is not included. Here, uh, we see why the chronicler, writing shortly after the Babylonian exile, was anxious to include it. This line of David's psalm praises God for his providential protection of his people when they were out of the promised land. And he, of course, it said, uh, he permitted no man to do them wrong. One might say that this is inaccurate. After all, the oppressive pharaohs seem to do much wrong to Israel, yet in the longer view of seeing God's good work, even through such painful times, David can truthfully say uh, that he permitted no man to do them wrong. And of course it said, don't touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. This seems to refer to God's people as a whole instead of a particular anointed individuals or individual prophets. Alright, verses 23 through 30, the command to praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised, and he is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. O worship 
the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. So sing to the Lord all the earth. God's covenant people have a special responsibility to praise him, but all the earth should also proclaim the good news of his salvation day to day. And it is only good news when it is his salvation. My salvation isn't enough to save me. I need his salvation to save me. This is something worth proclaiming here, right? It's nothing I do that gets me into heaven. Jesus Christ gets me into heaven, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4. So there is not one of us but has cause for song, but certainly not one saint, but ought especially to praise the name of the Lord declare his glory among the nations. So David is back to a particular address to the people of God, imploring them to tell everyone of the greatness of God and his superiority above all gods. And the reason for his superiority is simple. All the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The covenant God of Israel is real and the creator of all things in contrast to the mere statues of the nations. And so give to the Lord glory and strength. This is not in the sense of giving something to God that he does not already have, right? It is in the sense of crediting to God what he actually does possess, but what man is often blind to, right? And it says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. God's holiness, his set-apartness, has a wonderful and distinct beauty about it. It's beautiful because God is God and not man, and he is more than the greatest man or a superman. His holy love, grace, justice, and majesty are beautiful and perfect. All right, verse 31 through 33, creation praises God. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field rejoice in all that is in it. Then the trees of the wood shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. All right, so David knew that creation itself praised God. He knew that the beauty and power and skill of, and majesty of creation was itself a testimony of praise to its creator. And so Israel had the word of God to tell them of God's reign and his coming judgment. The nations have a testimony of creation to tell them what they should uh, know about God. Look at Romans chapter 1 verses 19 through 23, which states, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Right? So the Lord reigns here, and the creation itself tells us of a God of infinite wisdom, power, and order. It logically deduces that this God God reigns and will judge the earth, understanding that his order and power and wisdom are expressed morally as well as materially. And so, uh, coming to judge the earth, while earlier messianic prophecies had foretold our Lord's universal millennial reign in Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, Numbers chapter 24 verse 17, and 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 10, these words, he comes, may be the first in all of written scripture. Job chapter 19 verse 25 uh, may well have been spoken earlier, but... 
um, to set forth the doctrine of the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. All right, continuing on, verses 34 through 36, we get the conclusion of celebrating God's faithfulness to his people. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his mercy endures forever, and say, Save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said amen and praise the Lord. Right, so we get another uh, yet another demonstration of why the chronicler chose to include the Psalm of David in the account of the Ark's coming into Jerusalem. These ancient words of David would have special relevance to the returned exiles. They would not only have confidence in God's ability to gather and deliver, but they would also be motivated to give thanks and to triumph in your praise. The words do not presuppose that the people had been previously led away into the Chaldean exile, but only the Dispersion of prisoners of war led away captive into the enemy's land after a defeat. It was uh, just such cases that Solomon had in view in his prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 46 through 50. All right, and so all the people said amen and praise the Lord. And this reminds us that David's psalm was not sung as a solo. The hearts and perhaps the voices of the people were in complete agreement with him through the psalm. So verse 34, the creation are gonna the creation is gonna rejoice when he comes to judge the earth. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. And in verse 35, uh, gather us together from the uh, heathen implies that they were dispersed among the heathen. All right, we'll take verses 37 through 43, getting postscript, maintaining the worship of God. So he lets uh, Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly, as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom, with his 68 brethren, including Obed-Edom, the son of Jeduthun, and Hosea to be the gatekeepers, and Zadok the priest and his brethren the priests, before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place that was at Gibeon, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the burnt offering regularly morning and evening and to do according to all that is written in the law of the Lord which he commanded Israel and with them Heman and Jeduthun and the rest who were chosen who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because his mercy endures forever and with them Heman and Jeduthun to sound aloud with trumpets and cymbals and the musical instruments of God now the sons of Jeduthun were gatekeepers then all the people departed every man to his house and David returned to bless his house so he left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant is going to emphasize the point made previously in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 verses 4 through 6 that David deliberately planned for this to be more than a one day uh, spectacular show. He instituted ongoing service and worship before the Ark of the Covenant at its new resting place in Jerusalem. And this is going to remind us uh, before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place at Gibeon to offer the burnt offerings. It's going to remind us that the center of sacrifice was still at the tabernacle's altar at Gibeon. For the time being, Israel worship activities and personnel were to be divided between the ark at Jerusalem and the tended altar at Gibeon. And how long the service at Gibeon was continued we cannot tell. The principal functions were no doubt performed at Jerusalem. So Asaph was in charge and others included two Obed-Edoms, right? In verse 38 uh, this one was a musician and minister of the ark in chapter 15 verse 21 and 24 in chapter 16 verse 5 who may be the same man who looked after the ark in his own home in chapter 13 verse 14. The other was a gatekeeper identified as the son of Jeduthun in chapter 16 verse 38. He is also mentioned in chapter 26 verses 4, 8, and 15. This Jeduthun should not be confused with the chief musician Jeduthun covered in chapter 16 verses 41 through 42, chapter 25 verses 1, 3, and um, 2 Chronicles chapter 5 verse 12 who was also known as Ethan in 
in First Chronicles chapter 6, verse 44, and chapter 15, verse 17. And he was a descendant of Merari. Uh, the Jeduthun in chapter 16, verse 38, whose son was Obed-Edom, was a descendant of Korah. In chapter 26, verses 1 and 4, a grandson of Kohath. And so, verses 39 and 40 review. Uh, the reference to Zadok the, as a priest of the tabernacle at Gibeon reveals the reason for retention of two high priests. Zadok of the uh, from the line of Aaron of Eleazar was in charge of the Gibeon sanctuary, while Abiathar of the line of Ithamar officiated at the new tent shrine in Jerusalem. The origin of Gibeon as the site of a tabernacle is not known, but it must not have been deemed illicit since David appointed Zadok as priest there, and later on Solomon offered sacrifices there with God's approval in 1 Kings chapter 3 verses 4 through 10. In fact, it appears that sometime after the ark was taken from Shiloh, the tabernacle was moved also, eventually ending up at Gibeon, 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 29. So Zadok thus was ministering at the original Mosaic house of worship, while Asaph was with Abiathar in David's tabernacle, which housed the ark. And in verses 41 and 42, you have Haman and Jeduthun, also called Ethan in chapter 6 verse 44 and chapter 15 verse 7. They functioned with Zadok at the original Mosaic tabernacle of Gibeon. And that ties up chapter 16. Next time in chapter 17, we will speak about David and the temple. Thank you for joining me.